I was looking through my Bible this morning for last week's bulletin, and I came across a bulletin from April of 2016. And I was looking, and I saw that we were in Romans chapter 12 a year ago. We are blazing our way right through this. We will finish. I think we've been in it for about two years now. Not every week, but uh, I have enjoyed going through this. For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, I apologize that we're in uh, we're where we're at uh, for your visit. This is a very difficult passage of Scripture, and we have been building up to it. We've been building up to it in the understanding that if the gospel is truly the power of God into salvation, then it is the answer for our society. It is our answer for every society. It is our answer for our struggles at home, our struggles at work, our struggles in interpersonal relationships. It's the struggle that America's facing. It's the struggle that Iraq is facing. It's the answer to these issues. If we really believe that the gospel is the power of God into salvation, then our hope must be in the gospel. So then the question is, do you understand the gospel? Do you understand how it is the answer to those issues? And so this morning, as we go into Romans 14 for a second time, I want us to take some time to step backwards and remember where we were at. The last time we were in Romans was actually before Christmas. And so uh, we have a little bit of remembering to do. So if you'll bear with me, I would like us to review a little bit this morning to bring us to where we are today in Romans 14 and verse 13. Remember, Romans 12 said that if we are going to, we are to allow God's word to transform our minds so that then our bodies can be dedicated in service to God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Well, how do we do that? How do we present our bodies as living sacrifices? It says this in Romans 12 and verse 2, it is through the transforming of the mind that the body is dedicated as a sacrifice to God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then it goes step by step and shows how the gospel transforms our relationships. Relationships to one another, relationships to the church, relationships to the world around us, relationships to the government, if you remember that. And so here we come to Romans chapter 14, and it tells us that the gospel is the answer to the struggles within the church. Because we all in this church, Lord willing, want to please Him, and yet we have very different practices, different standards in our own lives and our homes. Well, how am I to accept somebody who has a standard that is different than my own? Many churches have fallen into the the trap of attracting only people who are like-minded on certain issues. And the church is a much more diverse organism than us for and no more. But how are we to react toward one another in that context? And so if you will look with me, really the key to the passage starts in chapter 13. The last verse of chapter 13 says, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Verse 1 of chapter 14. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations, or not to condemnation. 
And so as we want to understand Romans 14, there are a couple keys to understanding this passage. And please try to remember with me a few months ago what those keys were. First of all, this passage, Romans 14, is written about believers who want to please God. That is so important to understanding Romans 14. It is not written to believers who are turning their back on the Lord in disobedience. It is not written to people who, well, some people want to do right and some people don't want to do right. No, the whole passage is written about believers that want to obey God. And yet in that context, there are weak and there are strong. That is the key to understanding this passage. It is not dealing with sinning believers who are pursuing the flesh. It is dealing with believers like in verse, the last verse of chapter 13 says that we are putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh. Very important to understand. But as believers strive to live pure lives and to make no provision for the flesh, there are many standards that protect God's purity within us that are different than others. So the second key is to understand this. Romans 14 is not about identifying the weak and the strong. It is about identifying unity. What is it then that binds us together? It's not about saying, well, <laughs> I am the stronger brother and he or she is the weaker brother. It's about identifying how we come together in unity. Okay, very important that you understand that. Because the temptation as you read chapter 14 is to say, oh, well, I must be the stronger brother. Oh, they're definitely the weaker brother. Brother. That is not the principle. In fact, if that is what comes out of Romans 14, you have misunderstood the entire chapter. So we are to understand that it is about unity. Look at verse 1. Him that is weak, receive. The idea is reception here. Now, diversity in the church is actually what makes the church so beautiful. It is diverse in all areas of life. Race, gender, economic status, background, jobs, hobbies. We all find unity because we don't find unity in those individual things. We find unity in Christ. That's the church. Well, what is the temptation? The temptation then for a church like this is to focus on our differences instead of focusing on our Christ. Now, let's be careful here. The next key to understanding Romans 14 is not, well, I won't focus on his difference because he is sinning. It is not, that's not the differences we're talking about. We're saying that these are non-moral issues. Okay? Romans 14 is written to believers who want to please God in the church, and it's written about non-moral issues. The examples given in this passage are eating meat that is offered to idols and different holy days, different celebrations, different rituals in the Judaistic practice. And so it is those things that are brought to bear here. Now, if you remember many weeks ago, I did not mention any other things, any other issues in this passage. And today, I will do my best not to, many any, to mention any issues because I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to define in your heart what is a non-moral issue. Well, let's define it, and then you can start putting into real time what those things are. 
a non-moral issue is where the scripture is very clear about sin and righteousness. To do this would be to sin, or to abstain from doing this would be sin. Let me give you an illustration. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Okay, this is a command given in Scripture. Because it is commanded of God, it now becomes a moral issue. A moral issue of right and wrong. So if you forsake coming together as Christ's body, the church, you are sinning. It's not that, hey, some people just like to go to the beach on Sunday and some people like to gather with God's people on Sunday. No, that's not what we're talking about. That would be a moral issue. Adultery. Well, some people like to commit adultery and some people don't. No, obviously that's not what we're talking about here. God forbids adultery in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Homosexuality is something that plagues the church in this context. Because some people would say, well, homosexuality is a preferential thing. No, God has condemned it. God has condemned it in Old Testament and in New Testament teaching. Those are moral issues. We are not talking about those things today. Non-moral preferential issues. I like vanilla ice cream, and you like chocolate ice cream, okay? Now, obviously, that's not what's being talked about in this passage, but that is a preferential issue that does not hold morality to it. All right, that is very important for us to understand. The context, we're going to try to go quickly. The context, you have Jews who are saved, who understand their freedom now to eat any kind of meat. There are Jews in this church that understand you can have a ham sandwich and it doesn't, it's not disobedience to God. Other Jews are not to that point yet. They still abstain from eating certain meats. So you have those Jews. You also have Jews who practice the holy days, the rituals, the, the celebrations that came from back in the Old Testament. And others who say, you know what, Christ fulfilled that and I don't need to practice that ritual. These are very important issues that people are facing. The liberty to, uh, to eat whatever or the liberty to abstain. Now, on the Gentile side of this church, there were those who would not eat meat that had been offered to idols in pagan worship services, in pagan temples. But the practice was that as you came to, as a pagan, as you came to your temple, you brought an offering of meat. It was usually used in some kind of debauched party but there was always leftover meat that was then taken out and sold in the marketplace as a cheat to help support that pagan temple. Some of the believers in the church understood that meat is meat. There's nothing inherently sinful about the compound of the protein in the meat. And if I can get a, a deal on my meat, that's the best thing to do. Other pagans, other, other uh, Gentile believers that had come out of that practice said, how can you partake in this meat? Do you not understand the, the sinfulness behind what goes on in this temple? And so there was conflict in the church over these issues. That's the context. Now, what is the command? Very quickly, when we went over these, the command is this, to the strong believer, the believer who understands that in Christ there's freedom to eat this meat. There's freedom from, there's no God, there's no real gods out there. There's one God. There's, these are all idols. They're, they're wood and stone that man made. So those who are strong in that understanding and that knowledge, it says, do not despise the weak. So to the strong, don't despise the weak. 
to the weak, the command is this, don't condemn the strong. Well, obviously, there must not be a Christian. I mean, look what they're eating. They must not be a Christian. Look, they're not practicing, the, the, they're not following the Passover. Now, remember how important this was? Remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, men who were willing to die because they wouldn't eat the king's meat? This is not just a, oh, yeah, hamburger today, pork, uh, pork sandwich. I've never had a pork, well, I guess pulled pork, yeah. They, they, it wasn't just a light thing. These men were willing to die before they would eat meat offered to idols. And so this is an important issue. And yet there's freedom that's given. So to so the weak, don't condemn the strong. And then the commands, are, the commands go this way. And, and look at them with me, if you would, to get us to where we need to be today. The understanding is that loving unity is possible. First of all, in verse 3, it says that God receives both the weak and the strong. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. What a beautiful truth it is that God accepts both people. By the way, he accepts them not on their practice, but on the righteousness of Christ. And if God accepts every believer in this church, should you not also accept them? Do you, should you hold a higher standard than God himself when it comes to accepting one another? And obviously the answer is no. If God accepts them, then we can accept one another. Number two, the Lord sustains both the weak and the strong. Look at verse four. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. What a beautiful truth that God sustains the strong believer and God also sustains the weak believer. And if God sustains both, then I can accept both. The third thing, the Lord is sovereign over both the weak and the strong. Notice here in verse 5, one man esteems one day above another, another man esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Now here's where we get the understanding that these, both the weak and the strong are, are trying to please God because it says, look, the guy who doesn't practice this holiday doesn't practice it to the Lord. God, you have fulfilled the Passover through Jesus Christ. I will not participate in the Passover because Jesus Christ ended all those things by his death and resurrection. Hallelujah. And the other man says, I practice the Passover because it speaks of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. You see, both men want to please God and have different practice. And God, it says that God is Lord over both the weak and the strong. Go down to verse 7. For none of us live to himself and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. For this reason, Christ both died, rose, and revived, that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. Christ is sovereign over both. Then lastly, we saw this, that the Lord, will, the Lord will be the judge of both the weak and the strong. Verse 10, why do you judge your brother? Or why are you set against your brother? For we all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Very important wording there. You'll bow to to Christ, not to anybody in this church, not to any pastor, not to any priest, not to any denomination. You bow to Jesus Christ. And every tongue shall confess to God, it says. So then, verse 12 sums up all of verse 1 through, through 11. So then, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. So uh, we said this, it takes great trust in God 
And it takes great spiritual maturity to let God be God of both the strong and the weak. Sometimes we like to place ourselves in the position of God over others. But here it says to let God be God. And here's the thing, if I will focus on my relationship to Christ and my answering to God and the fact that he accepts me, then I can accept others. Because God accepted me. And so really we came down to the end of it and we said this, if we could sum it all up in a very crude way of saying it, here's how we could say it. Let God be God, love fellow believers, and mind your own business when it comes to disagreement over preferential things. Let God be God, love other believers, and when it comes to things that you disagree about that are non-moral issues, don't make it an issue. And here's the thing. After that service, a number of people came up to me and said, man, that was fantastic. I, that is great. That, I needed to hear that. That is fantastic. You know why? Because it, puts, it gives to all of us great liberty. And as Americans, oh, we love our liberty, right? I am now free from the expectations of you to do what I want to do. Now, this is all in the context of pleasing God, right? Okay. And so there's great liberty in fact, Christ died so that we could have that liberty, so that we would not be bound by the expectations of others and bound by the preferences of, of others and free to live in Christ, before Christ, and with each other. All great liberty. And if we could end the passage there, some would be happy and some would be frustrated. The strong brother would be happy because he says, look, I have license now to practice those things that I want to practice and not fear what people think of me. Others would be frustrated. You just gave, you just gave a, a get-out-of-jail ticket to those who, who don't do right. That's what the weak brother says. The passage doesn't end there. So welcome to this morning's service. We'll now get started. I hope you're with me. I know that was a long introduction. But please pay attention. This, now we come to a very important part where God looks at you, not as an American. He looks at you as a Christian. He says, do you love your liberty? Then give it up. Give up your liberty. What? Wait a second. Didn't we just read about how we are liberated? Yes, look at verse 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. But judge this, rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. We're now introduced to a very important passage in Romans 12, where the focus no longer is on weak and strong brothers, but in fact it is geared toward the strong brother. So, as we all like to consider ourselves the strong brother, this message will be for everybody right? Let's remember this too. When talking about strong and weak brothers, we're not talking that so-and-so is strong and so-and-so is weak. Each one of us is both the strong brother and the weak brother. In this context, there are some issues that I am strong in. There are other issues that I am weak in. There are issues where you are the strong brother and I, as pastor, am the weak brother. There are issues where I am the strong brother and you are the weak brother. And so don't say, well, I'm the strong one. We're both strong and weak. Now, 
let's look at this word, the word of God, for those who are in the position of strength, or what we'd say is in the position of knowledge, the knowledge of what God has freed us for. So here we have the command right off the bat. There's four commands that we'll look at today. Not commands, they're, they're actually statements about love. Love always sacrifices, right? If you're married, you can look at your, your spouse and say, for you, I have sacrificed great things, right? Well, you have said you have forsaken all others. And as an American, you are free to have relationships with whoever will have a relationship with you. However, the love then constrains that freedom. In fact, love gives away liberty for the sake of another. Parents, you understand this. How much do you sacrifice for your children? Oh, you sacrifice even your health for your kids. Not to mention all of your money. You know what love is. Love is to give up what is rightfully yours willingly for the one loved. All right, so here in this passage, we have four things that love gives up. Let's look at them. Number one, love defers to avoid a stumbling block. Love gives up freedom to avoid a stumbling block. The Bible says, do not judge, and it uses the word judge twice in verse 13, and they're actually different interpretations. Number one, do not judge means do not condemn. Remember, who are you? You're not the master. Don't try to condemn somebody else's servant. Do not condemn. Do not judge. Why? Well, it was just stated that every man gives an account of himself to God. Do not be the one who casts judgment on a believer that is different from you. But then it says this, do judge, absolutely judge. Look what it says. Let us not therefore judge one another, but judge this rather. And the, the word here for judge means to have discernment. Have discernment. As believers, we are commanded to use discernment to encourage one another. How do we do this? We do this by not putting stumbling blocks in front of one another. The idea of a stumbling block is something that is placed in front of another that causes them to fall into sin or to fall away from faith. And here's what was happening. By publicly expressing the liberties that they had, the strong believers were leading the weak believers to sin. They were leading the, the, the weak believers to to violate their conscience before God. Paul is telling the strong not to cause offense to your weaker brother. Now, I want to remind you, this same principle applies to any activity or principle that is not inherently sinful. Problem areas vary from, so from society to society and from person to person, but the principles never change. The loving, caring, strong Christian will determine in his mind and heart to be sensitive to any weakness of a fellow believer and avoid doing anything, including that which is innocent in itself or otherwise permissible, that might cause him to morally or spiritually stumble. You see what love does? Love takes what is rightfully yours and it actually gives it up 
for the preference of somebody else. So do you understand the gospel? Do you understand the gospel? See, the gospel, the gospel is the answer for churches that are having splits. The gospel is the answer for why you despise another family in the church. The gospel is the answer to self-righteousness, is it not? Do you believe it? Love defers or gives up freedom to avoid the stumbling block. Next, love defers to avoid grieving a brother. The strong Christian recognizes the internal conflict that can be caused by his expression of liberty in the presence of a weak brother. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not lovingly, charitably. We understand. Have you ever argued with a teenager? If you've argued with a teenager, you understand this principle. There is nothing unclean of itself. Okay. And we can take anything. We're going to take the plant of marijuana. Who created the marijuana plant? God created the marijuana plant, so I should be high right now. That, that's, that's not part of the message. That's the teenage thinking, right? Well, God created the marijuana plant, and God had created all things to enjoy. I'm sinning by not being high right now, right? You know, there's nothing evil about a marijuana plant. Nothing. We use other plants for medical purposes, don't we? By the way, I'm not about to stand on a platform here for the use of marijuana. But I'll tell you this. Nothing in and of itself is evil. By the way, for any teenager to smoke marijuana in South Carolina, it is illegal. It is sin. So we just can leave the argument right there for now. Once that changes, we'll work on it. There are, obviously, there are many other issues to why, uh, why we abstain from that. But you see what I'm saying? The meat, you're telling me that this hamburger is somehow sinful and this hamburger is somehow sanctified? It's the same thing, okay? However, however, the loving brother says, for me to eat that one is to offend my brother and I will give up every hamburger that has ever been offered to an idol so as not to offend. And here's why. Love defers to avoid grieving a brother. If my brother loves me and I love my brother and I am taking advantage of something that he cannot do, think about the anxiety that it places on him in his relationship to God. This happens all the time. And it happens a lot more because we have Facebook where people put their preferences on the internet for everybody to see. And guys that I went to school with who have found freedom in certain issues that I am not free to participate in, it makes me, well, am I just immature in Christianity? Am I just foolish in my understanding that if I did that, I would be sinning? And they flaunt it as, they flaunt it fragrant, not fragrantly, flagrantly. Okay? 
Do you see that how if you were to take advantage of something that you believe is a non-moral issue and it is you are free to do it, but you do it in front of somebody that you know has a problem with it, how you can create such inner turmoil in their heart, grieving your brother. And just for that, the Bible says, let it go. Give it up. You don't need that. Love defers to avoid grieving a brother. Very interesting. Jesus says this in, in Mark chapter 7, verse 15. There is nothing from without a man that entereth into him that can defile him. Speaking of what they eat. He's saying, look, nothing that you eat is inherently sinful in itself. Nothing that you eat. He says, but the things which come out of him, those are they that defile a man. Oh, guess what? It's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you. It's actually the motivations of your heart, your speech, your actions toward others. That is where the sin resides, right? First Timothy 4, 3 through 5 say this. There are some in the last days who will have wrong doctrine. One of them is forbidding to marry. That's 1 Timothy 4, 3. But the rest of that verse goes on to say this, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them, which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if, to be, if received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Just a side note, that's why we pray before we eat, right? We know that the food in and of itself is neutral, and yet we give thanks to God, and through that we sanctify ourselves to the thanksgiving of God. Okay? That's why we pray before we eat. It does not change the chemical compound of the food. The donut does not lose any calories because of prayer. Still has... Okay, all right. So we... Paul is teaching Timothy, and he says, look, every creature that God has made is good, and it's not to be refused as food if received with thanksgiving as a gift from God. But there will come those who will refuse and say, you must abstain from certain meats. Okay? Now, how did Paul handle that? How did Paul handle that? Well, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, let's look at that. As you're turning, I want to remind you that the stronger brother is entirely right in his conviction that he is at liberty to enjoy anything the Lord does not declare to be sinful. The weak brother is entirely wrong in his understanding about abstaining from meats as godliness. However, the weak brother is not wrong in the sense, he's not wrong in the sense of being a heretic or immoral, if he does not eat. In fact, it would be wrong for him to eat if he believes that it's wrong. Now listen, I want to be very careful here. This is not relativism where something is sinful just because you choose it's sinful or something is not sinful because you choose that it is not sinful. Our world lives in that cesspool. Well, what's good for you is good for you, but what's good for me is good for me, and as long as you're convinced in your own mind, no. But people think that things are sinful that God has not called sinful. And if they believe that it's sinful, it would be to transgress their conscience to then take part in something they believe is sinful. 
By the way, remember, both of these people still want to please God, right? Okay, good. Romans 8 and verse 4, Paul actually encounters this exact issue. And so we see from his example what it means to defer out of love. Romans chapter 8, verse 4. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things which are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be they that for though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. There we have our difference. For some, with conscience of the idol unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Their conscience is defiled in doing something that is permissible, but they are still convinced that it is not. What does he say to do about that? Look, verse 8, But meat commendeth us not to God. Meat doesn't bring us to God. God's not saying, well, if you eat this meat, you can come to heaven. No, but meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see, they, see thee, which hast knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Look what's happening. There's a strong brother who recognizes this is cheap meat. And I'm all about cheap meat. So he goes to the idol's temple and he gets some meat. And the weak brother who has been involved in pagan worship and who, who just hates it so much because it was so anti-Christ when he was unsaved, sees this brother going in and getting that meat. And he says, well, pagan worship must be okay. You see what, you see the, the jump there? What the man meant for a discounted meat sale, this weaker brother constituted as pagan worship and then himself takes part in the practice not for cheap meat, but for pagan worship. You see? And here's the key to the strong believer. You must know each other well enough to recognize that and abstain from it. Do we even know enough e each other well enough to know what the stumbling blocks would be? Look at the rest of the passage. Verse 12. But when ye sin so against the brother and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. You see, the meat isn't the issue. It is the lack of love that is the sin. The lack of love is a sin against your brother, but more importantly, it is a sin against Christ. For you to use your liberty in such a way that causes a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ to sin is in itself sin. And now it has become a moral issue. Look what Paul did. 
verse 13. Wherefore, based on these things, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Do you see what this, do you see what Paul is saying? Paul is getting nitty gritty about, you know, meat offered to idols. And he says, look, I love my brother so much that meat is a particular part of flesh. He says, I will eat nothing that while the world stand until I die, I will not touch anything that causes my brother to offend because I love my brother so much. I'll give up the privilege of eating all these things. By the way, let, let's, let's remind ourselves, they're no different than we are. We love to eat, right? We love to eat. Look at your credit card bill and how much you spent going out to eat. Paying for food that people fixed for. We love to eat. They love to eat. But Paul says, I'll give it all up. Because I love my brother, I can put aside my freedom. Oh, what a wonderful testimony, right? And the strong brother sighs and says, Oh, I despise that weaker brother. Look what he's making me do. And that's the whole reason chapter 14 and 15 are written, that you despise not the weaker brother. Oh. By the way, there's a lot of issues that you're going to plug in after this message. First of all, make sure they're not forbidden in Scripture. Okay? And then don't despise somebody who's different. And if you are the stronger brother who has freedoms that some people in this room cannot enjoy, well, are you the strong brother? The strong brother puts aside freedom. That's strength. Just because you have liberty does not mean you have to use that liberty. Or Do I have to take advantage of my liberty? No, in fact, love, love takes liberty and makes shackles out of it and binds us to the person loved. Paul loved the church so much he would give up his diet. Not a diet plan. He would give up what he ate. We'll give up our diet all day long for people we love. Not that kind of diet. Do you see it? Do you see how Paul is willing to, to give away liberty because he loves the brother? All right. Next, love defers so as not to destroy a brother. Love gives up its freedom so it doesn't destroy its brother. The idea here is to tear down a building, and in this context carries the idea of spiritual loss. And, and, and a lot of these points are obviously overlapping, but look what it says in the next part of that verse. Verse, uh, verse 15 says, if, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou uncharitably, or not lovingly. Destroy not him with thy meat. For whom Christ died. Paul is saying here, don't tear down the work of God in this person's heart. For, for a, a Gentile to come out of pagan worship to God is God's work. God is working to bring him to a point of salvation and a point of separation from worldly practices. And Christ is doing that work in their heart. And then here comes the selfish Christian and says, hey, that's okay. And he's, what? God has been working on my heart and you're saying it's Okay. And it would tear down what Christ has been building up in this person's life. It's very interesting. He says this, Don't destroy him with meat for whom Christ died. And that's to bring out two very different issues. For whom Christ died. This is, if Christ was willing to give up ultimate liberty 
and the free expression of godhood. Can I not give up certain liberties and preferences for the people that I see around me? Liberty in a mature believer's life is so modified by love that we actually look like and follow the example of Christ. It's amazing, huh? The strong believer lives not for himself and his liberty, but lives like Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but laid aside everything he had and was made in the form of man and became obedient unto death. So, I mean, is, is what you eat really that important? We're talking about Christ giving up godhood and you can't even give up and then you fill in the blank. How much did Christ set aside to express love for us? How many of his liberties did he defer in order to die for mankind? He died for the weak. Can we not eat a meal of vegetables for a weak person? Perhaps it would be helpful to just stop and put your name in the context here and say this. Think of some non-moral things in the church that you disagree with other people, maybe even in this church. Think about those issues right now. And it doesn't matter where you think you're on either side, weak or strong, just think about it. Get those non-moral issues in your mind and then answer this question or fill it in. If Jesus died for the weak, can't I fill in the blank? Can't I give up, can't I, and I'm going to say the word embrace, I'm not talking about embracing sin, can I embrace the differences in a brother who I believe is weaker? You see, Christ does. Christ accepts them. Christ sustains them. Christ is their judge. And if he is, so should you. And if Christ was willing to give up everything for you, can you not give up these small things for others? Here's what, here's, here's what happens, though. We find something in our lives that we are convinced God has given us liberty to enjoy. Others may disagree. And when we are unwilling to set aside the freedoms for other brothers and sisters in Christ... It is a telltale sign that we are actually in bondage to false liberty. 1 Peter 2.16 says this, As free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God. Here's what it's saying. If you have anything in your mind that you said, No, I'm unwilling to give that up. You are not the stronger brother. In fact, it is not even an issue of spiritual liberty. It is an issue of bondage to sin. If you are unwilling to give something up, it is not about spiritual strength. It is not about spiritual maturity. It is not about spiritual knowledge. You are saying this. It's my liberty, but that, li that saying is just a coat that you throw over unbridled sin. Whoops. Whoops. 
If you go and splash it all over Facebook, and if you go and make this the defining aspect of your ministry, this is what we're free to do. You can identify very quickly that you are in bondage to that as sin, and it is not liberty. Why can we say that? Because you're unwilling to give it up. You're unwilling to give it up. If there's anything that you're unwilling to give up, you are a, you are a slave to that thing. And by the way, how many good things in this life that God has given to us become our master? So we have a golf tournament coming up on Saturday. I am a horrible golfer. I don't golf much. If that golf game has the power to cause me to curse, to cause me to take the name of the Lord in vain, and to lose my testimony with the guys I'm golfing with, am I free to golf? No, I am a slave to my own pride. If pastors who are known for their golf games many times, and our pastor is not, by his own admission, I've never played with him, Pastors get involved in golf because it's one way to give the gospel is to spend, you know, six hours with somebody on a golf course. You can really get to the nitty gritty and you can see the, the struggles of life right there. But if a pastor is now enslaved to where he must golf a certain amount of times per week and is willing to sacrifice his ministry for golf, he is not free. He's a slave. And I'll mention this just because of the enslaving nature of it. Alcohol is something that in and of itself cannot be condemned. However, in the freedom to use it, people are enslaved, right? And even in the freedom to promote it as freedom, they have enslaved themselves to it, and it is not freedom. It is not Christian liberty. It is not strength. In fact, it is absolute weakness. Now, my goal was not to say those things. I believe the Lord led me to say those things, but I want you to be thinking of things in your life that you are excited to enjoy as a Christian but unwilling to give up and then realize that is not strength and it is not freedom. How much do you love the people in this room? It is seen in your ability to give up what is rightfully yours. That is true love. So what happens in the church is when we refuse to do that, we actually lose the testimony of the gospel. That's the whole reason we're studying this. Look at verse 16 and we'll be done. Love values the gospel over freedom. Love defers so as not to set a stumbling block. Love defers to avoid grieving a brother. Love defers to not destroy the brother. But look what it says here. Love values the gospel above all freedom. Verse 16. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Are you kidding me? The work of Christ in this world, the the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, these amazing truths are not about what you eat today for lunch. Don't take the sacred 
and malign it for something so temporal as lunch. Lunch is in today and out today. The gospel changes cultures. It changes families. It changes lives. And you would compromise that so that you can eat what? You see it? Don't let your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify the other. Man, if you know something is different than a brother or sister here in this church, give it up. Are you the stronger brother? Give it up. Why? Because in giving it up, you actually build up that believer. How do you ever expect believers to come into a fuller knowledge of the gospel if you're unwilling to live out the gospel? Let us therefore follow after things which make for peace. Have you ever heard the statement, I would be a Christian if it wasn't for the Christians I know? It's a sad testimony, and it is an excuse. It's an excuse that people use not to be accountable to God, but unfortunately, there is some truth in it. What kind of a testimony to our community do we have if we bicker and fight with one another? In fact, the verse we read this morning in our in our scripture reading out of Galatians says, but you, you're, you're eating each other. Instead of walking in the spirit, you bite and devour one another. Take heed lest you be consumed of each other. How many churches have dissipated because they're eating each other? And it has to do with this issue of love. The gospel is the answer for church splits. The gospel is the answer for self-righteousness. The gospel is the answer for what you do in your home and what somebody else does in their home, even though it'd be very different. The gospel is the answer. Do you understand the gospel? Are you free in Christ? Do you love that freedom? Or do you love the brother and are willing to give up the freedom? Therein is love. It doesn't serve itself. It serves its brother. The kingdom of God and the work of Christ is so much more important than fill in the blank. The kingdom of God and the work of Christ is so much more important than your preferences, than your offenses. We'll finish the chapter another time. I'd encourage you to continue to read through it and allow God to work in your heart and bring to you an understanding of your place before God and before one another. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I would ask you to take some time to seriously consider only yourself. We're quick to start pointing fingers in this part of a service. We're quick to think about those who should have been here to hear. We're quick to think of those who need to be listening. We need God to do a work in our own hearts. We need God to give us a love for one another, such a love for one another that we would sacrifice ourselves as Christ did. Are you the stronger brother?
If your answer is yes, then you are laying aside your freedom.